our first episode, we said that The Taming of the Shrew is notable for the questions it doesn't answer about the central couple. Here, we go more deeply into the many possible interpretations of their relationship and ask what this open, interpretive quality tells us about Shakespeare's work. Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford, guides our discussion. The Taming of the Shrew is one of Shakespeare's most controversial plays because of what it seems to endorse – sexism, misogyny, and the suppression of women by men. At face value, writes scholar Jonathan Bate, the play proposes that desirable women are quiet and submissive, whereas women with spirit must be tamed through physical and mental abuse. The question then becomes whether the play goes past its face value. I think this is the play where a standard reading is actually quite hard to achieve. I think that there is a sense in a lot of the commentary that this is ultimately a misogynistic play. Catherine the Shrew of the title is tamed, and that's a a terrible and sort of broken spectacle. But alongside that, a sense that if that's really what the play is about, why would we spend any time on it at all? If this is a story in which a husband tames a confident and autonomous wife, then there's not much for us to see there. I think it's a play which is itself more questioning uh, than that. If this is one of Shakespeare's most controversial plays, it's also one of his most ambiguous, and those ambiguous elements have all to do with the misogyny that it can seem to endorse. In The Taming of the Shrew, has the shrew really been tamed? The critical questions about this play have been all about that central relationship and the title. What does the title suggest? Is it it ironic? Is it straight? Those questions find their answers, a wide range of possible answers, in performance, in how actors and directors choose to play the relationship between Catherine and Petruchio. On the one hand, these are two zany, quirky, non-conforming individuals, both of whom stick out from their boringly bourgeois society. It's great that they found each other, and that is going to be a marriage of sparks and passions and arguments and intellect and throwing things, and it's going to be all the more interesting and exciting because of that. So that would be the most positive sort of, here's a marriage of equals of the sort that we rarely see in Shakespeare's plays. But we could argue that Petruchio, who comes to wive it wealthily in Padua, as the line has it, so he's a bounty hunter, and he has no regard for Catherine at all, uh, treats her abominably, uses methods of torture like sleep deprivation and so on to break her spirit and then forces her to sort of parrot his own lord of creation kind of uh, moral at the end. That would be the most sort of negative or disenchanted version of the play. Uh, And in between, there are all kinds of different versions of that. Petruchio makes clear that he is interested in money, not love, when he starts courting Catherine. He also seems to have as much potential for angry shrewishness as she does. When Hortensio warns him about Catherine's scolding tongue, his servant Grumio interjects, Scolding would do little good upon him. He will throw a figure in her face and so disfigure her. But... 
when they meet, the words they throw at each other suggest some mutual interest. This is a brilliant moment. This is the moment that stands in for, perhaps it even is, uh, the courtship between them. What, what each of them does is to build on, to take up a word, to pun on it, to, to sort of turn it back uh, to the other speaker. Now, that's adversarial in, in all kinds of ways. It's combative, but it's also collaborative and constructive. They're, they're building uh, on what each other says. And there are lots of ways to think about that sort of interlocking connectedness as, as a kind of foreplay, maybe. Petruchio greets her, telling her, Myself am moved to woo thee for my wife. Moved in good time, replies Catherine. Let him that moved you hither remove you hence. I knew you at the first. You were a movable. Why, what's a movable? A joint stool? Thou hast hit it. Come, sit on me. Asses are made to bear, and so are you. Women are made to bear, and so are you. No such jade as you, if me you mean... Come, come, you waspish faith, you are too angry. If I be waspish, best beware my sting. My remedy is then to pluck it out. I, if the fool could find where it lies. Who knows not where a wasp does wear his sting? In his tail, in his tongue. Whose tongue? Yours, if you talk of tails and so farewell. What, with my tongue in your tail? Nay, come again, good Kate. Catherine picks up uh, Petruchio's speech. Myself am moved to woo thee for thy wife. She picks up, I knew you were immovable. And then Petruchio has to ask what's that to give her the kind of punchline, a, a joint stool. And then he turns it again. If I'm a stool, you know, come and sit on me. And then she moves, asses are made to bear, and so are you. So if I were to sit on you, it would make you into a, into a donkey. Petruchio says women are meant to bear, as in to, to, to be on their backs. Uh, is it he who has sexualised this, uh, explicitly sexualised this speech? They're pretty equally matched. There's a, this very kind of filthy joke that they both enjoy about having your tongue in someone's tail. So they begin this very energetic, very muscular kind of punning and bantering. They're really well matched in that. And it's a rough kind of courtship, but it does give a sense that there's a connection between them. That insipid, formal wooing of Bianca by Hortensio and then Lucentio has nothing of the passion and power and stage energy that this sequence has. But we must also ask whether this passion and energy have a darker side and whether this equal footing continues once Petruchio marries Catherine and sets about taming her. We've seen Catherine being treated badly and feeling completely trapped and unable to communicate except through violence with the rest of her terrible family. And here she is actually ha having a kind of arm wrestle, a verbal wrestle with someone who is her match. And one could argue there's something quite sexy about that. One could also argue that that's a very bad model which is not sufficiently far from the idea that when women say no, they're just really saying, uh, I ought to say no, but I mean yes. And ethically, that's one of the real problems that the play brings up. 
I think if there is physical violence or the threat of physical violence, that that's something we just can't accept as part of anything other than abusive relationship. Just as he was open about his desire for money, Petruchio is open about his intention to curb her mad and headstrong humour. He deprives Catherine of food and sleep, and in some productions, this taming is accompanied by the threat of violence, especially since Petruchio does beat his servants. At any rate, Catherine doesn't seem to see this process as a game. Does anything change in the final part of the taming plot? On their way to Padua, Petruchio tells Catherine to say that the sun is the moon. When she finally obeys, Petruchio seems to think that the taming has been accomplished. But this moment could be played in different ways. As a sign of Petruchio's absolute dominance, forcing her to adjust her view of reality at his command. As a sign of the absurdity and irrationality of blanket male authority over women or as a sign that Petruchio is aware of that absurdity and is turning conventional gender roles into a game. To unsettle someone's sense of their own perception is to turn the, the violence and the self-doubt and to make the person internalise that rather than accept it as something from outside. But the question of whether Catherine really is, or whether she's just saying... Do you know, I just don't care. If it matters to you, fine. I'll just say it. You can certainly imagine uh, versions of the play where where that's what she's doing and she doesn't actually feel psychologically broken or tamed tamed by that. And that, that sense that this is just absurd and that they would just burst out laughing is also available from that exchange. I like the idea that they laugh to, that they're able to laugh together. I think that's the most powerful of the the sort of resistant readings to this play, which is that it's the two of them against the world, and 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 they are each the best audience for the other's craziness. Which reading of this moment is right depends on how actors in a given production perform it, and the same is true of Catherine's speech to Bianca and Hortensio's wife. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign. She seems to say not only that she has been tamed, but that it was right for Petruchio to tame her. But there's nothing to indicate how she should speak these words, or what implied meaning she should give them. Perhaps Kate has been brutalised or brainwashed into believing that women are unable worms, as she says. Perhaps she speaks the words with such an exaggerated parodic quality that she undermines and ironises every word to publicly spite Petruchio. Or perhaps she makes the speech a kind of private joke between them. If Petruchio has been performing a role as the shrewish husband to kill her in her own humour, perhaps she wants to show him, as his partner, that she can perform right alongside him. These different ways of performing the speech will correspond with different ways of playing the final moments. Catherine ends her speech by telling the women, Place your hands below your husband's foot. My hand is ready. May it do him ease. There's no stage direction indicating whether Catherine does extend her hand to Petruchio or not. Likewise, there's no stage direction when Petruchio says, Come on and kiss me, Kate. You either have a, a director who says, yes, they kiss. This is the reconciliation. This is the meeting of equals. This is the, 
romantic ending that we've been waiting for. You know, this is what the taming means. It could be that Petruchio takes an unwilling kiss, which is a very different ending. It could be that she just turns on her heel and ignores that request. This could be an implied stage direction, they kiss, but it could also be uh, a, a sort of moment of the, the wider choreography of the play, which gives quite a lot of different possible physical actions, which all have different meanings. The ambiguity of this final moment sums up the ambiguity of their whole relationship. To what extent they are partners, to what extent they share power, to what extent love or hatred defines their feelings. It seems startling to think that Shakespeare could leave core elements of a play so absolutely unexplained. And so we might wonder whether the play seemed less ambiguous to its first audiences. In a more rigidly patriarchal society, perhaps audiences naturally assumed that men would and should have more power, that of course Catherine was tamed and should have been. But it's not so simple to reconstruct how audiences in the 1590s thought about gender. I think recovering the gender ideology of the Shakespearean period is really, really difficult And probably it was a more varied picture than we tend to assume. What we tend to look at sometimes, which seems on the face of it very helpful, is so-called conduct literature, literature which sets out appropriate behaviour. And this material tends largely to think of the the, the woman as the uh, creature of the house, someone who needs to keep her counsel, be, be an appropriate support to her husband, but not not sort of nag him to be self-contained and orderly and modest in, in the home. Now, that may indeed be how many women behaved, but one argument historians make, which I find very compelling, is that if everybody did behave like that, there would have been no need for all this conduct literature. So therefore, the act of telling people how to behave could more properly be interpreted as a, a historical signal that they're not behaving in that way. And I think that's quite compelling for this play. I don't think myself people went to Shakespeare plays to have their own world reflected back to them. I think they went to the theatre to enjoy uh, far-fetched, more extreme scenarios rather than realist ones. And I found that quite a helpful way of thinking about this rather extreme parable of gender relations. Officially, the cultural norm was for women to be quiet and orderly. Catherine's speech at the end of the play echoes norms found in Elizabethan homilies and religious services. But the official codes don't tell us how people actually behaved or how they interpreted Shakespeare's play. Perhaps they thought Catherine hadn't really been tamed at all, and perhaps they thought that was a good thing. Such a response is evident in a sequel to Shakespeare's play that was written by fellow playwright John Fletcher called The Woman's Prize or The Tamer Tamed. Fletcher imagines Petruchio has been widowed and is undertaking uh, a second marriage to Maria. And Maria starts a kind of wonderful rearguard action. She barricades her bedroom, has all her uh, girl pals in there, and they're sort of throwing things at Petruchio. And she says to him, you were known as a wife breaker, and now a wife is going to break you. So she suggests that Petruchio 
did conquer Kate, did, did break her, and are going to give him a taste of his own medicine. What, what's really interesting about the, about the play is that Petruchio's friends keep talking about the, the dead, dead Catherine as if she made Petruchio's life a misery. So the men think that Petruchio had a bit of a dog's life with this uh, strong woman, Catherine, and the women in the play think that Catherine, it was Catherine who was, um, you know, sort of uh, under the thumb of Petruchio. So they still see the play, that's to say, from different perspectives. They're both great theatrical events. They're well plotted, they're witty. And the pleasure of watching the Fletcher play is almost certainly the pleasure of at least at some point, identifying with Maria and her girl pals, saying, you know, they've got one over on him. If Fletcher could count on his audience to enjoy Maria's triumph over Petruchio, perhaps what Shakespeare's audience enjoyed was Catherine finding some kind of power as well. At any rate, Fletcher's story reveals the varied perspectives one could have on this play, even in its own day, and interpretations have only become more varied since then. What a play might mean isn't just about what the author meant or how it was first performed. It's also about the different history and experiences that each new company and audience carry with them to the play. In Catherine's case, for example, there might be ambiguity in the character Shakespeare wrote, but there are some things he didn't write into her character that modern adaptations might choose to. We see Catherine, she's got her sister Bianca kind of tied up and she's, she's being violent uh, to her. So Catherine's original freedoms, her character is presented not really as uh, sort of thought through resistance to male authority. She seems like an angry person out of control. And, and the argument that what needs to happen to her is that she needs to be socialised and she needs anger management is certainly a possible interpretation of how we see her at the beginning. It doesn't seem necessarily the first tenet of feminism that women should be allowed to tie up uh, their sisters and slap them. I guess in certain circumstances they probably should. But it's a bit different from... Um, one of the versions of this, modern versions of this play that I love is the movie Ten Things I Hate About You, which is a high school version of, of The Taming of the Shrew. And the, the character is called Cat. The cat of this movie wants to go away to, to college. She's a modern young feminist woman who feels completely locked into her household and her, her father and her terribly annoying sister. And she has, has a life beyond this now, that's a great reading, which makes her very sympathetic, but it, it, it helps me to see that that's not how Shakespeare presents Catherine. He presents her angry, out of control, antisocial. She's, in some ways, waiting for someone to come and take a hold of her. I don't think there is a language for, fe for feminism in Shakespeare's play, but I think if you were reworking the play for the modern period, that's probably what, what you would want to put into it. You would want to give Catherine's rage, the kind of feminist anger which would elevate it above what the play sees as spoilt, kind of antisocial, violent behaviour. But if we give this new, greater social significance to Catherine's story, aren't we leaving behind Shakespeare's play and projecting something of our own? Not necessarily, says Emma Smith. Shakespeare wrote plays that are full of gaps, unanswered questions, ambiguous moments open to many interpretations. We have to fill in the gaps, 
writes Smith in her book This Is Shakespeare. The plays need us in all our diversity and with the perspective of our post-Shakespearean world to make sense. Shakespeare takes shape, she writes, through our interpretations. Our interpretive work does remake the plays, but this remaking is not a betrayal of Shakespeare. As Smith writes, this reading, thinking, questioning, interpreting, animating, this really is Shakespeare. As we see from The Taming of the Shrew, he crafted questions to be answered by readers and performers. The unique experiences and concerns of various audiences through history allow the plays to speak to us in different ways. And sometimes, because of Shakespeare's role in our culture, there are certain things we need his plays to say. I don't know whether Shakespeare himself in his own time was writing a particular kind of play, but certainly the framing that it has, whenever we're thinking about it now, tends to use it as a way of thinking about these kinds of power relations or critiquing or seeing them more clearly. That's probably been pretty much the only way to think about it in the modern period. We tend to make the Shakespeare that we want or need, a Shakespeare who is relevant in some way to our own concerns. We don't want a Shakespeare who is completely historical because that doesn't make sense for the role Shakespeare has in our theatrical and educational cultures. But on the other hand, we don't always want a Shakespeare who is too too modern because that feels as if it's somehow distorting the plays. So the balance there is quite an interesting thing to trace. And Taming of the Shrew has almost always been described in terms of its relevance to the, the shifting contemporary context. Is this a misogynistic play or is this a play about the effects of, of misogyny. I think there's been a huge amount of effort to produce from The Taming of the Shrew a play that is not simply misogynistic. If you read any review of the play from the last 250 years, it will make some allusion to the suffragettes or the new fashion for short hair or the bra burning or you know whatever, whatever shorthand there is for the relationship between men and women, about women's conduct, women's aspirations, and how they have been expressed in, in the contemporary period. I think this is the play that is always read through those contemporary uh, lenses, even though, or perhaps because it's the play which seems furthest f- from contemporary views about gender. I, I, I love that definition of a classic, the work that hasn't finished telling us what it has to say yet. And I think in that sense, Tell Me the Shrew it, it is a classic. It hasn't finished telling us what it has to say. And that's also because of these are issues with which our world is still struggling. In our next episode, we'll examine speeches from Petruchio and Catherine and explore how modern adaptation and performance can transform the meanings of Shakespeare's works. <laughs> <laughs>